A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode I wanted to share about this incredible artist. I see his stuff all over, and I finally contacted him and made a purchase myself, and will probably continue to do so, Elon Block. He does great art, abstract art, very beautiful, rich, a different, fresh kind of look. I love his stuff, and I uh, think that a lot of our listeners of Jewish History Soundbites will like it as well. His, he, you can commission any historical figure, and he'll give you this incredible, you know, fresh, uh, um, abstract um colorful if you want, not colorful if you don't want, whatever, it's a, anything else, or or historical figures or anything else, um, you'll love it. Here's his contact information, obviously I'm going to post it as well um, in the show notes and on the Jewish History Soundbites uh, social media uh, um, platforms. On Twitter, he's at Elon Block, I-L-A-N Block, B-L-O-C-K. Uh, same uh, an, an Instagram. He's S Elon Block S I L A N B L O C K. His uh, number for WhatsApp and stuff like that is nine zero eight two three nine nine one six one. And you can email him at Elon Block at gmail dot com. I L A N B L O C K at gmail dot com. So I'll post that. And I want to, what I wanted to speak about today is a little bit of a different type of episode than I usually do. But this struck me a while ago, and I looked into it, and and obviously um, I'm making this connection myself, so I don't know if it actually has historical significance, but I want to explore it a little bit together with uh, all of you uh, out there. There were four events in the Jewish world in the year 1897, which just happened to take place in the same year by pure coincidence. Um, two of them were major events in the Jewish world, and two of them were relatively minor events in the Jewish world. Um, but I think they're still significant, especially for religious Jews. The first two major events were the, was the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, with Theodor Herzl. Of course, who chaired it, and he called it. He convened the conference, the the, the Congress, 
and that was at the end of August. The second major event was the founding of the Bund, the Jewish Socialist Political Party in Russia. It was founded in Vilna in October of that year. And then the third event, which was, like I said, a much more minor event, but very significant, especially in the Torah world, was the Pulmus HaMusser, the dispute regarding the Musser movement um, in Lithuania, uh, which took place over the summer of the year 1897. And the fourth event, last but not least, uh, was the founding of the Taimchei Tamimim Yeshiva in uh, in Lubavitch by the Rebbe the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, and he appointed his his young son, his son who just had finished his Sheva Brachas, um, in, in, uh, and that was in El that year. So El was September, of course, in the year 1897. And these are four very, very different events. They cross the ideological, political, and religious spectrum of the Jewish people in, in Russia, in Europe um, at the time. Um, and therefore, they're t- the four are seemingly completely unrelated whatsoever to each other. And maybe it's just coincidence that they happen to have taken place in the same year on the Gregorian calendar. Or is it significant that they're all in the same year? Now, I'm not saying that there's something mystical about the year 1897. That's not what I'm insinuating. This is not an 1840 type of situation or podcast. I think that it's just a metaphor. 1897 just happens to be a metaphor for an undercurrent, which gives expression in different ways, and they happen to have taken place during the same year by coincidence. So there's nothing special about the year itself, obviously. I hope that's obvious. But it's an excuse. The fact that they coincided that way, it's an excuse for me to delve into that time period and take a bit of a survey of the Jewish world at that time and perhaps find a an underlying uh, connection about why this is a time of transition, a time of change, a time of revolution, a time of, of 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 searching for new solutions and new identities in the Jewish world at the time. And I want to actually explore it further by noting that two other things took place in 1897 on the other side of the world, which have absolutely no relation to the Jewish people or Jewish history, but I feel that it may broaden our perspective as well. And these two things took place in 1897 too. One was the Klondike gold rush in Yukon. Um, the discovery of gold there was in 1896, but word reaches Seattle and San Francisco from the Yukon only in July of 1897 when river traffic was restored after the winter. And there's this image of get rich quick of gold, of, of, of the new world, of America, is, is the streets paved with gold. And, and here you can get rich quick by just finding gold. If you can venture out to the Yukon, 100,000 people uh, reportedly tried to get there approximately. Um, most of them did not get there. Only about 30,000, 40,000 got there. But speculators and businesses surrounding the mining and these these, you know, Dawson City, these other like uh, boom towns, and then the rise of places like Seattle. Seattle doubles in its population during the next few years, and San Francisco, other cities, and this is during the time of great immigration to the United States, among them many Jews. So 
there's there's Jewish immigrants and other immigrants who see America as the promised land, and now they're heading out literally to find gold. And uh, and this is you know big reverberations around the world as well. That's another event that takes place in 1897, and then a further, very seemingly very insignificant event takes place, and that's that the New York Times starts printing the their slogan, their famous slogan, all the news that's fit to print on the front page in February 1897. It had already appeared on the editorial page several months earlier. It was coined by Adolf Ox uh, himself, the owner of the paper. Um, but in February 1897, it started to appear on the front page and uh, continues to do so, as far as I know, until today. Now, the New York Times had been purchased a year earlier by Adolf Ox, Oaks, Ox, Oaks, however you pronounce it. He was an unaffiliated Jew from Cincinnati, the child of German Jewish immigrants um, who came during the, the German Jewish immigration of the 1840s, from the 1820s to the 1860s, but they, his parents came in the 1840s. And his slogan of all the news that starts to print that he now wanted to print, to, to, to have on the front page of his paper, it signaled his competition with two other prominent New York papers at the time, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. Both of the others engaged in yellow journalism, sensationalism, and Oaks uh, wanted the New York Times to be considered the newspaper of record and accurate journalism and not yellow journalism of the other two uh, prominent newspapers in New York at the time. Um, worth noting that Joseph Pulitzer was a Hungarian Jewish immigrant who was born in Makov near Budapest. Um, and uh, ironically, the Pulitzer Prize, which is for you know accurate journalism, among other things, photographs and all kinds of other categories, but one of them is you know accurate journalism and good reporting. So the, it's named after a person who proudly engaged in sensationalist and yellow journalism and very not accurate. But in any event, he was a Hungarian Jew. So the Hungarian Jews competing with the German Jew, which is not the first time that happened in Jewish history. But both of them are as American papers, not as Jewish papers. Of course, William Randolph Hearst was non-Jewish, but since his the character uh, of, of William Randolph Hearst, was in, he inspired... Citizen Kane, so we can say that he was close enough to being Jewish, since Hollywood is Jewish, of course. And even though Orson Welles was not Jewish, but the screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz was. In any event, why are these two events, the Klondike Gold Rush and the New York Times coining their new slogan, why are they connected to the first four? So first of all, they're not connected to the first four. But there's something about it that that made me uh, make a connection anyway. Um, and that's that this is during the time of immigration. What's hovering in the background of 1897 and all these other events that are taking place in Jewish Europe is the great immigration. Um, Jews are leaving Eastern Europe and going to the United States. They're going to the Golden Medina, where now there's actually gold in the mountains of the Yukon, which is technically Canada, but it's the same idea. And Jews are rising in prominence. The earlier generation of German Jewish immigration, which comes a half a century before the Russian Jewish immigration and the Galicia Jewish immigration, they're already Americanized. They're already rising in prominence in new countries. There's a secularization. 
There's economic struggle. There's a search for the new Jewish identity in the new world. There's new technologies. Newspapers are a relatively new medium. Um, and there's all this change that's represented in the new world, and it has its effect on the old world as well. And not only in the fact that it's pulling Jews to migrate from the old world to the new world, but it eventually has an impact and it changes the Jewish community in the old world as well. So even though there's no direct connection at all, but it seems to be, to me at least, that because the greatest uh, change that's happening in the Jewish world is the immigration that's taking place, the migration that's taking place, and therefore the Jews are on the move. The Jews are searching, there's, there's this struggle, it's the period of modernity, there's, they're confronting new challenges and, 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 and all these economic changes and political changes, and therefore there's a search how to confront all this change. So it's about really the time period around 1897, it's not specifically about the years, that whole decade or you know, a few decades actually of the close of the 19th century and the beginning of the, the, uh, the, um, the 20th century. Now, of the four uh, events that I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, uh, Zion, the First Zionist Congress and the founding of the Bund and the Pulmus HaMusser, and the founding of Teimchet Mimim. So the big two, the 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 the, the um, first Zionist Congress and the founding of the Bund, represent the larger response, the external response about how how is the Jewish people as a people gonna gonna define themselves and and confront the new world of 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 change, of political change, of economic change, urbanization, things like that. The latter two, the Pulmus HaMusser and the founding of Taimchei Tzmimim, kind of express the internal or religious response, um, an internal response within the Jewish community, within traditional Judaism. And it's a response to what? It's a fast-changing world which required some sort of reaction to a very dynamic social and political environment and which presented traditional Jewish life with some pretty serious challenges. And uh, with this, like I said before, the hovering in the background the, is the great immigration. So, the, like I said, you know, the Jewish people are, are moving out. They had enough of Russia, they had enough of the Tsar, they had enough of the Pale of Settlement, and many of them are leaving. And there's, there, the great immigration is already two decades old. It starts in the beginning of the 1880s, and now it's 1897, and, and it's on the cusp of an exponential increase in the decade leading up to World War One, which is going to have enormous, tr tr tremendous numbers of Jews moving. And, and the Jewish community who stays put is confronting similar challenges in different ways, with different solutions, uh, with immigration not being one of them. So they have to figure out how they're going to deal with the world. And, uh, and, and I think all these different events are really um, different solutions. They're providing different solutions or they're presenting. Um, and I think it's, it really gi gives the tapestry of the Jewish people at that time about how, how the Jewish people over their history deal with change, deal with transition. And of course, it's all gradual. It's a process. There's no instant change. And I'm not trying to say there's instant change because of these events. They're just uh, indicators. They're indicators, and therefore, 
it's worth pointing out the indicators because the gradual process is hard to perceive in for sure in real time, but even in retrospective analysis. And therefore, these events that took place indicate the underlying change that's that it's representing, that it's expressing. And I'm going to just discuss each one of these four events, not in a chronological order throughout the year. Um, as an aside, all four of these should really have their own episode. Um, they're huge stories. Um, of course, if you want to sponsor one of those, then sponsorships are available, so you can be in touch with me about that. But now I just want to use these uh, events as an overview of the time period. We'll start with the Bund. Um, there's this this uh, growing movement towards socialism. The Industrial Revolution uh, affects the Jewish people as well, and they're working for their factory rights and their workers' rights. And the Bund is founded based on that premise of socialism and revolution and anti the Tsar and the Tsarist government. But the Bund sees a unique situation to the Jewish people in Russia and and therefore the Jewish people as a whole throughout the world, although it's questionable how much the, the Bund saw the Jews as a whole. They definitely saw Jewish workers as a whole, wherever they may be. Um, they definitely did not have much affinity for Jewish capitalists or the Jewish religion or Jewish nationalism, such as the Zionist movement, um, to say the least. They had, had a lot less than affinity. They had a lot of uh, antagonism towards all the, all the above. But they also, on the other hand, Arkadi Kramer and the other founders of the, uh, of the Bund, who gathered in Vilna in in uh, the fall of 1897 to officially found the Bund, which is kind of, you know, really existed before that, but this was like the, the formal founding of it as a political entity, as a party. Um, they, they, they are focusing, first of all, on socialism, on workers' rights, on improving the, 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 the world, like whatever socialist ideals were at that time, um, and, and Jews flocked to socialism because they were a persecuted minority. And, of course, revolution against the Tsar. And, of course, Arkady Kramer and most of the other leaders of the Bund are arrested at one point or another, either way in the beginning or during the 1905 revolution when the Tsar cracked down um, on, on all these revolutionary movements. But what, the unique, but the, what was unique about the Bund and they presented as a platform was a form of Jewish nationalism, of Jewish culture, of Jewish language, of Yiddish, um, and combating anti-Semitism, working for Jewish rights, and, and, and they marry that to, to socialism. In other words, this is a unique Jewish socialism, and because of that, they had a very fraught uh, relationship with other non-Jewish socialists who, who said socialism needs to be universal. There can't be anything particular about a specific nationality. That's, that's the very antithesis of what socialism is supposed to be. Socialism is supposed to be universal. Workers worldwide need to unite. And if you, the Bund, say the Jews are unique and the Jews have a special situation and they're specially persecuted and there's special anti-Semitism against targeting Jews, not just workers. And it's not just the economic system that needs to be changed, but Jewish identity needs to be strengthened and the Jewish language needs to be recognized and autonomy with culture needs to be demanded. And, and, and there's a specific 
real situation for the Jews. That means that they're they're presenting a uniquely Jewish response to the economic challenges of living under the czarist repression, and therefore it's it's a it's a a, a something um, um, very relevant to the time because socialism is prominent everywhere during the closing decades of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. But here what we're seeing is is that it's married to the idea of preserving Jewish identity in the modern world and struggling for Jewish autonomy and survival and, 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 and sticking up for Jewish rights in a very unique way, in a different way, and turning their backs on tradition, um, going against the Jewish religion, seeing that the modern era is different for, 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 the, for the reasons that they perceive, and seeing that, that Zionism, Jewish nationalism, is not the answer either, because that's a form of escapism. It's unrealistic. We have to deal with the here and now and the reality of living under the czar. That's the Bund. The second thing was, like I mentioned before, the first Zionist Congress. You have Theodore Herzl, who envisions it at Basel. I founded the Jewish state, or I conceived the Jewish state. Um, that's what Herzl writes after the, the Congress. It takes place in the last days of August in 1897. Max Nordau, all the other Zionist leaders, um, Nathan Birnbaum at the time is part of the Zionist movement and others. And and the at the Zionist Congress, there's an absorption of the most of the Chayvevei Tzion, the Lovers of Zion movement, which had existed in Russia, and now they're incorporated into the the Zionist movement, which becomes an official movement, which becomes a political movement, uh, which becomes much more serious with a a platform and a program, and it takes nationalism to a practical and serious level. And here, with the founding of the Zionist movement, what the Jewish people, whoever associated with it at the time, whether they were religious or secular, are assimilated, like Herzl himself. And there was a quite a bit of a range within the Zionist movement at this time um, of, of, of Jewish or, or traditional affiliation. What they were saying was is that emancipation did not work. In Western Europe, it did not get rid of anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism, existed and even increased in the 19th century. And and in Eastern Europe, emancipation never happened. The Jews never received their rights from the Tsar, which is where most of the Jews lived in Russia, in the Pale. And uh, so if, if there's no solution to the Jews in Europe. Emancipation is not working, which seemed to have been at the dawn of the century, that seemed to be what the solution for the Jewish people would be. Emancipation, we become citizens, we can integrate into our countries, we can become proud citizens of our countries. And by the end of the 19th century, it seemed that it wasn't working in Russia because they didn't get it yet, and it didn't seem like the Tsar was too keen on ever giving it to the Jews or anyone else in Russia, for that matter. And in Western Europe, it didn't get rid of anti-Semitism. So what this First Zionist Congress was saying was that what these theories and ideas and ideologies of Jewish nationalism, of Zionism, of, of, of creating, creating a state or, or creating a Jewish entity that can, get, can provide a framework for their existence, for Jewish existence in the modern world, it takes nationalism to a practical and serious level, and it's providing a new solution. And the First Zionist Congress makes it concrete, it makes it real on the ground, that it's now a component of the Jewish people. 
The third event was the Pulma Samusar, which was the background of the Pulma Samusar. So a year before that, in 1896, there's the founding of the Navardic Yeshiva, by the altar of Navardic, Rabbi Yisif Yezel Horovitz, which was a more radical form of Musar. It brought Musar to the forefront again. There's another Musar Yeshiva, and, and they have... I spoke about this in an episode quite some time ago about Novartic and what it was and how it was spread, how it spread eventually. It opened other branches. That was still on the horizon. It hadn't happened yet. The year before was also the passing of Rabbi Yitzchak Hanan Specter, the great Kovnerov, who was a great unifier uh, of the Jewish people in Russia in general and for sure in the religious community and without the unified leadership anymore. So there's disputes that can break out. Several years earlier was the closing of the Velazhin Yeshiva, the, 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 the first, the modern yeshivas, and the greatest one, and now there's this competition among Lithuanian yeshivas, who, who, who's replacing Velazhin, who's succeeding Velazhin at the forefront. There's also the re- revolutionary fervor that affects the yeshivas as well, and there are revolutionaries in the yeshivas, and this is a revolutionary time in Russia. And then, of course, we have the early years of Slabatka Yeshiva, which is the first real Musr Yeshiva, where the altar of Slabatka of Nesnesi Finkel combines elite learning. It's going to be the best Yeshiva. It's going to be a contender for the successor of Alajin on one hand, but it's also a Musr Yeshiva, which was the first of its kind. It was a revolutionary concept. It was a new educational concept, and it caused controversy. And there's a Slabatka revolt a student revolt within the yeshiva. I spoke about it in one of the first episodes ever of Jewish History Soundbites a couple of years ago. And the rabbis across Lithuania are divided, and they express their different opinions in the pages of the Hamelitz newspaper, the most popular newspaper read by Jews in the Russian Empire. And and there's the Laman HaEmes and the Laman ha, uh, something else, the pro and the anti, Kol Kairis, these proclamations published in the newspapers. And there's this entire dispute about the place of Musser in Jewish society, in the yeshiva curriculum, and what is Musser, and should it be studied, and is it is it appropriate, should it be part of a a yeshiva curriculum, is this a way to train rabbis, is this what the Jewish people need, is this what should, is it new and we're a conservative society so anything new is against tradition is it, is it very important is it something that can actually help the yeshivas with all the revolutionary and all the post-Haskala uh, reality and the beginning of secularization of the Jews in Eastern Europe, is this something that can actually enhance the yeshiva studies and everyone's got an opinion and the result of the of the Pulmus Hamusser is a a revival. I mean, anytime there's strong opinions expressed on both sides, Slabatki Yeshiva splits, the the altar leaves and with the people with, with the students who followed him and the the two leaders of the Pulmus Hamusser, the the Hisnagdus, the uh, the movement against the Musser movement was the rabbi of Kovna, the son of 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 Inspector Tzvi and the rabbi of Slabatka, Ramesha Danishevsky, and they take charge of the yeshiva that remained in Slabatka, that was not the altar's yeshiva, and they found it as yeshivas Knesset and they eventually, several years later, in 1904, they hire a Baruch Berlebevich to be the rosh yeshiva of the non-Musser 
non-Musr or anti-Musr, depends how you want to term it. So there's a split in Slabatka, and this, you know, split it eventually enriches the yeshiva world, and it enriches Jewish society because the whole discussion is, you know, what what do we need? What are our values? Eventually, Musr wins out because almost every yeshiva uh, has Musr eventually, especially after World War One. So the long-term results is that it enriches the yeshiva world. This discussion of the pro and anti-Musr and how the Alter Slavatka ultimately emerges victorious and the Vardic succeeds too. And even the non-Musr yeshivas succeed also. So there's this flourishing of the Torah world, of the yeshiva world, of the Musr yeshivas. And, um, and therefore there's a renewal uh, a very rich renewal of the internal spiritual and traditional life as a result, which is a reaction to the changes happening in Jewish society at the time. The fourth and final um, event that takes place, and also it's really its own episode, it was a watershed moment in Hasidic history, the founding of the Taim Chetmim Yeshiva, um, really an incredible story, the Rebbe the Rashab, Rabbi Sholem Bereshnirsen, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad in Lubavitch, and he appoints his son, Rabbi Yisuf Yitzchak Schneerson, who's of course the Friyadikah Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, and um, and this founding of Taim Chetmim kind of foreshadows the responses of some of the great visionaries, leaders, and tzaddikim of the Hasidic movement during the ensuing decades during a time of crisis in the Hasidic movement, which I discussed in an episode, and how the Rashab pioneers this. The Rashab says that Taim Chetmimim is going to save Russian Jewry, going to save the Hasidus, is going to strengthen the, the Chabad and Russian Jewry in general, the communities, what it's going to produce. His focus on education, his focus on youth, was very unique and very revolutionary for the time, both education and youth. No other Hasidus did that take place until years later, and many of them were, many of them did that eventually in the interwar period and beyond. And the idea was to have it wasn't just a yeshiva; it was quite a unique yeshiva with a mashpia and teaching Hasidus and strengthening their identity of the tamimim of the students in the yeshiva. So, Taimchei Tamimim was a revolution. It was a revolution at a revolutionary time, and it was a reaction to what was going on around them. And uh, and it was a pioneering endeavor about to have this type of yeshiva, to have a yeshiva, to have the Rebbe focusing on the youth, and having his son running it under his auspices. And other branches open up, Kremenchuk, in many other cities across Russia, and it becomes an entire movement with their own journal and newspaper and gatherings and fabrengans and, and songs even. And um, and and Taim Chetumimim becomes a model that really brings Chabad and Lubavitch to a new level. It really strengthens the ranks, and they produce rabbis of, of of communities across Russia in the ensuing years. And therefore, this response again, an internal traditional response, but it's revolutionary. It's new. It's to confront the challenges of modernity and these changes happening in Russian Jewish society. So if we would summarize, we can say that although, like I said, these events have nothing to do with each other, and especially the the far-off events in America have zero to do with what was going on in Jewish Europe, 
They all happen to have taken place in the same year, in 1897, and it's kind of a reflection of what's going on in the wider world, both the wider Jewish world and really the wider world of, of, of society, and especially this immigration that's taking place in the, back, in the background, that people are fed up, Jews are fed up with living in Russia under the czars, and they're moving, they're leaving, they're leaving it all behind, moving to a new world, and those who choose to stay, either by choice, by conscious choice, or because of inertia, or because of any other reason that they're staying, which is that ultimately it's the majority of people, two-thirds of, of Russian Jewry do stay in Europe, um, so the overwhelming majority stays. And how do, they, how do they search for Jewish identity in the modern world? How do they confront the challenges, the economic changes, political changes, threats, and challenges to traditional religious Jewish life? How are they going to strengthen their internal life? And therefore, it might not be such a coincidence that this all takes place during that year 1897, and um, at the cusp of a new century, um, the Jewish world is redefining itself in many different directions. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.